God knows me and calls me by my name. God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me, which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I may never know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father Brendan Kilcoyne, hello everybody, and a happy Christmas. If you haven't been listening to me over the Christmas, happy Christmas, and oh, for goodness sake, a definitely more bearable new year. What a year we're about to be goodbye to. I know there are no bad years and no bad times, and we, we find God in everything we do, but this last year was really no joke. And so we look forward to better times. I'm just considering the gospel of this week, the gospel of yesterday, which was the Feast of the Holy Family. I'm just thinking of that remarkable moment where God is recognized as being a coming man. I know that sounds silly, but it's Simeon basically identifies Jesus as the Christ. And it's an extraordinary thought. Because as a teacher, I had often said it, whether jokingly or seriously to a student, you're going to go far. But here Simeon picks out Jesus and he says, this is him. He picks out God. I can't help but go back to the etymological roots of the very word Israel, which as one scholar has pointed out, literally means he who turns the head of God. He who turns the head of God, El being God. It's a remarkable thought is that Israel is this nation about which God is crazy. God is daft. God is intent on Israel. And here is the one whom God has promised. The prophet Isaiah and other prophets, God has promised and here he is. And Simeon proclaims him. Now in the earlier reading, and, and of course there's a choice of readings, but if the earlier reading for Sunday was that magnificent gospel from Genesis 15 where God promises Abraham in his old age and his wife Sarah, who has up to then been unable to bear children in her old age, descendants as many as the stars of heaven. And Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. And here Simeon declares the presence of the one who is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And it's by no means a rose-colored prediction. He turns to Mary and says, And a sword shall pierce your heart also. Yeah. Because the sign will be rejected. This God becomes sign of God. It is an extraordinary thought of the humility of God. I know that's it's a ridiculous phrase, but you just end up struggling to find words to put on this. And inevitably you're dancing with heresy half the time. But it's just an extraordinary thought that God himself becomes one of the descendants whom he has promised to Abraham. For is Jesus not the biological son of Mary? And is he not the spiritual son of Joseph, in that Joseph is his foster father? And he is the son of God. And the most perfect fatherhood is that of God, who is spirit and not of the flesh. And Joseph's fatherhood is valid. So in every sense, Jesus is the descendant of Abraham and is, in the sense of the Trinity, the creator of Abraham. It's a mind-blowing thought. 
I don't have the head for it. It's a mind-blowing thought. If you're a theologian listening to this, you take it and dwell on that more and come up with better explanations. This tremendous humility of God, this willingness of God to do for us what he demands of us. I was quoting at the beginning there the words of John Henry Newman in one of his famous meditations. This willingness of God to do what he leads from the front. He does for us some definite service. The plan of God and the calling of in the creation, which is in itself covenantal. God created us covenantally. He created us with our salvation in mind. And then the great calling of Israel, who in turn turned the head of God. The love affair with Zion, with Israel, and the calling then, which had been already predicted by the prophets hundreds of years before, the calling in Jesus Christ of all the nations, of the nations, of the goyim, of all the peoples. Not only of the elect, but the election of everyone in Jesus Christ. God has done us that which he asks of us. God has done us some definite service. God who caused himself to be descended from the very Abraham he had created, saved, and to whom he had promised in his old age, the impossible, descendants as many as the stars of heaven. God assumed the status of one of those descendants. And now God does for us what he asks of us, some definite service, that we play our part. It's an amazing thought. It's a mind-blowing thought this Christmas time. And so I can't help but think at this time with definitely a feeling of melancholy. And melancholy, remember, contains the word mel, the Latin word for honey. It's a sweet sadness with a feeling of melancholy. The news which I heard yesterday of the death over the Christmas, literally on Christmas Day, of the legendary Father Reginald Foster, American Carmelite who spent some 40 years of his life in Rome head translator to the Vatican, one of the great Latin experts, uh, Latinists in the world, and regarded as probably the greatest teacher and apostle of Latin in the English-speaking world, if not the whole world. Reggie Foster's course in the Gregorian in Rome, and after the Gregorian kicked him out in various locations in Rome, his course in Rome, it was an institution of worldwide repute. And of some notoriety, because taking his course was not only tremendously stimulating and improving, it was terrifying. Foster was that of which, and I'll come to this more later, that of which Newman talked. He was one of those personalities whom God has called to do some definite service. He was a remarkable man. Uh, if I could just talk about him a little bit, because it really would help us to understand what I'm talking about better in terms of this definite service. Foster was a, a Carmelite. He refused to wear the Carmelite habit, which he said was simply the medieval dress of the poor. He pointed out the point of the habit was to dress like the poor, so he dressed in a two-piece Sears Roebuck working man's outfit, a kind of a boiler suit, two-piece boiler suit in blue. In my day, when I took his course back about 91 or 92 in Rome, he wore, I think, black combat boots with it. Or that's what they look like anyway. I think it, he moved to black sneakers later. Nobody knew what age he was, but he has just died at 81, we're told. 
He was a remarkable character, totally and fanatically devoted to the restitution of the Latin language, to the revival of Latin. He taught Latin, he dreamt in Latin. The purpose of his course was that if you stuck with him over the years, you would end up dreaming in Latin. There are as many stories about him in Rome as you can imagine. His course was famous in the Gregorian. Many people were sent to him by the deans of their faculties to get more Latin. Uh, you needed a lot of Latin for canon law, which I studied, and you needed also a lot of Latin for ecclesiastical history. Those two, anyway, for a start. And Foster, he didn't like his course being used as a cog in the Gregorian machine, the machine of the Gregorian University. And so when you came to him, he'd say, are you being forced to do this? And if you said yes, he would offer you what was called the magic seven. Now, a pass mark in the Gregorian was six. You were marked out of 10, in fact, out of 100, because it went 9.1, 9.2 and so on. But a pass mark was six. A good pass, a very respectable pass was seven. And Reggie would say, I'll give you a seven at the end of the year. If you clear off, spare me spare Latin and so he, he wouldn't teach people who didn't want to be taught and so if you buggered off and left him alone he would give you a seven at the end of the year when the university heard about this they not unreasonably deprived him of his diploma so Reggie printed his own diploma in my day he could print it in either black or red they were the only two colors on his printer and if Reggie signed that diploma it was legal currency in pretty much most of the universities in the world Reggie Foster's Latin course in the Gregorian was famous. And if he signed off on it, it meant you had indeed studied with him. There were two lectures a week, each lasting an hour and a half. You would be absolutely banjaxed after the lecture because you had to pay absolute attention because he was utterly deadly. He spent the class roving the classroom, prowling like a roaring lion, looking for someone to eat, as the scripture has it. He screamed his way through the class and he had an unerring ability to detect when you were starting to fall asleep or when you were losing attention and he would pounce on you and make a total noggins of you in front of everybody. I had the experience on several occasions and believe me, it wasn't pretty. So the class lasted an hour and a half. You got homework and the homework was never repeated so there was no chance of looking up what he had given in the past. The homework were photocopied, closely typed sheets packed with material from the classical authors which constituted uh, exercises. He didn't teach paradigms. He didn't uh, encourage you to learn things by heart. He'd break down the grammar into small edible pieces and then he would hand you loads of excerpts from the classical writers in which to find and use the grammatical point that he had been making in the class. It was a very, very interesting approach. And he had nothing but contempt for those who thought he knew Latin and didn't, as he said, know anything. When people said Latin was difficult, he would point out in his unforgettable words, and I quote, Pimps and prostitutes in ancient Rome spoke excellent Latin. If they could do it, we can do it. He was utterly fanatical about the language, absolutely devoted to it. He was an extremely ascetic priest. He slept on the floor. He lived the Carmelite life very strictly. He was in many ways very mystical. 
Most unfortunately, he had a habit. He loved to shock. He would come out with very liberal-sounding theological soundbites, half of which he probably didn't mean, but they were often pounced on, and it often got him in trouble. But an utterly remarkable man. When he retired and went back to America, he continued teaching at one of the universities there. When he became too infirm to do that, he continued his classes in the nursing home. He taught and taught and taught, literally until COVID-19 carried him away on Christmas Day, which it did. It was COVID. COVID killed him. Father Reginald Foster, a wonderful follower of the Carmelite tradition, a wonderful companion to Teresa and John of the Cross, a wonderful servant of Latin, and above all, a wonderful servant of Jesus Christ and of the Church, a flawed man, but a great man, and one of those personalities whom, in the words of Newman, God raises up to do him some definite service. We wish Reggie the peace not of the grave, but the peace of heaven, the true peace that comes from participation in that magnificent, endless babble that is the court of heaven, where he is conversing with the God whom he loved and served in perfect and beautiful Latin. Requiescat in pace. I think of Reggie today, I think of him when I was taking that class and I wasn't his best student and I was terrified of him. The exercises at night took a minimum of three to five hours. I never got them done in less than three. I wasn't a great linguist, I was a capable one. I was competent. But I admired and yet was terrified of him. He had, as some people said about uh, Michelangelo, he had the Italian word, a terribilità. There was a, a terribleness in him. There was a passion in him that could burn. It really could burn. And uh, I just think of him when I think of humility and when I think of the job of work, the definite service that we have to do. God was willing to take flesh. God was willing to become a descendant of the very Abraham he created. God was willing to take flesh and to do a job of work on earth, to be the son of a small builder. Joseph was a technon, which probably wasn't just a carpenter, but also a bricklayer, a small builder. God was willing to come on earth and to do a job of work. And we have a job of work to do. And I cannot emphasize that enough. We have a job of work to do. And if we wanted a quiet time, that's too bad. I'm reading at the moment, you may have guessed. I'm here self-isolating because I was a close contact of another priest who has COVID, a very fine priest who has COVID. And I'm here self-isolating now. I had to do it right over the Christmas, which was an awful pain for my colleague, Father Benny, who ended up having to do all the masses. And I'm rereading. I never read it cover to cover. I read it in gobs in the past, unforgivably. Newman's Apologia Pro Vita Sua. And I'm hugely enjoying it. And I'm just looking at the way Newman was born, both as an Anglican and a Catholic, into ferociously controversial and unstable times. Tremendously controversial times. Newman, who was himself a retiring and gentleman. And, uh, like, what are we complaining about? God leads from the front. God himself has done this. We have so many fantastic examples. I'm thinking of St. Francis de Sales. I'm thinking of St. Philip Nero, who was such a tremendous influence on Newman. We're complaining about being rejected, how we're rejected at near, you know, at so many doors. St. Francis de Sales, trying to work outside Geneva, was turned away from most of the doors initially that he knocked on. The Newman, who was greatly inspired by St. Francis de Sales, suffered rejection all his life. I mean, Newman really suffered rejection. 
And I've always maintained you, you don't get any great work done without the wound. The great artistic work, the great work for God is done by those who somehow have experienced the sense of being outsiders. And Newman was an outsider in a sense all his life. He was an insider. You have to be an insider to be really hurt by becoming an outsider. He experienced the sense of being an outsider in, in his beloved father's bankruptcy. He experienced the sense of being an outsider in his academic failure. A brilliant student, he overstudied, panicked, and was lucky to take a poor third at Oxford, where a double first uh, would have been par for the course for somebody of his great gifts. He got back inside, he was made a don, he was made a fellow of Oriel College in Oxford at the centre of the Anglican Church, which he loved. He took orders, he became an Anglican clergyman, but he could not rest because the Anglican Church was under siege at the time. It was the centre of controversy because, of course, it was very politically controlled and there was a huge liberal move against the church and a move to disestablish it. And Newman could not rest. He was also drawn spiritually and intellectually to what he called the Via Media. He wasn't a Protestant, and yet he distrusted and disliked the Catholic Church, and, and he wanted a middle way, the Anglican middle way. And so he couldn't rest. He, who was in some ways drawn to a quiet life, was deprived of it. And he started the tracks for the Times in the 1830s and they got a lot of criticism in some ways, although they also brought him disciples. And he was an outsider again. And then finally he became a Catholic. And if he wasn't an outsider before, that really made him an outsider. And he entered a religion which was in the back streets. It was literally in the back streets and on side alleys. Fintan Monaghan a year ago did a lovely little introduction to Newman and is a great devotee of Newman himself. He studied Newman for his license in biblical theology many years ago in Maynooth. I just feel we have a great deal to learn from Newman as from Reggie Foster in the humility we need for our task. But we can also take great courage from it. And particularly from those quiet, gentlemanly saints who so inspired Newman, who was so quiet and gentlemanly, but could roar like a lion when he had to. And I'm talking about St. Philip Neri and St. Francis de Sales. He was so inspired by them. And the quiet courtesy with which all of these people time and again proposed Jesus Christ and proposed the faith to a sceptical world is a tremendous inspiration to us now. We have some definite service to do. The secular world now will be banging on about New Year's resolutions. If we're going to have a New Year's resolution, let's let our New Year's resolution be to live this year as if it were our last in the service of the Lord, wearing a two-piece, so to speak figuratively, a boiler man suit. Getting on with the work of God, with a job of journey work, with this job of tradesman's work that is the task that God has set to us, whatever that task is. And here's the thing. Newman says in the Apologia, he says, no living work was ever done by a committee. No great idea developed through the post. He said, systems don't produce great works. And he had a tremendous belief in personalities, although he, he was very doubtful about some of them, especially about Luther, with good reason, because personalities can go wrong. 
but he had a tremendous belief that God gives everyone a definite work and that we should not be hiding behind committees or waiting for committees to do things or waiting for something to be done. A parish priest I had in the Gaeltacht, the great man, still on the go, very, very clever and well-read man, he used to contemptuously say when he'd hear people go on like this, here they come, the hee-haw brigade. And it was a play on the Irish conditional hee-haw. You would think, he'll hog in the she. You'd think they'd do it. He'll hog in yen dinikins, rudikins. You'd think somebody would do something. Here they come, he'd say. The hee-haw brigade. Now, for goodness sake, if we're in the hee-haw brigade or in a hee-haw frame of mind, let's get out of it. God has called you to do this. Whoever you are and whatever that is. So you have to work out who you are and what that is. And those two things are connected. Don't be under any illusion about that. This is my Christmas present to you. I'm going to ruin your new year. He has called you to do something definite. He has called you and nobody else. You, the descendant of Abraham, like him. Do you see? He leads from the front. He's there in the boiler suit standing beside you, screaming at you about Latin verbs. Now, if you're not willing to scream about something, if you're not willing to put on a boiler suit, so to speak, if you're a priest and you're not willing to put on the plain, worn, working cassock of a working priest and rabbit on about something, I remember one of the greatest tributes I ever heard somebody pay to a priest, and that particular priest used to annoy the hell out of me too, but a woman commented about him, oh, he'd drive you crazy, he never shuts up about God. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous. It sounds funny. I mean, what do you expect a priest to talk about? But I know what she was saying, too. He was crazy about God. He was like Reggie Foster about Latin. Reggie Foster was crazy about God. But he didn't talk about him much. John, just a wonderful interview I saw with the great, and I repeat, the great John Waters lately. The great and rejected John Waters. A remarkable personality in our times. A remarkable servant of God in our times. John Waters talking about rock and roll as is a lecture he gave in America. Rock and roll as, a, as an expression of longing for the infinite. But he talks about this particular thing is this passion for relating something that you have discovered. Something that you have found. And of putting it across. He's talking about the great people of rock and roll as expressing that longing for the infinite. Reggie Foster screaming about Latin, doing the job of work, getting the job done. And Waters makes the point, which Tolkien also made. You do it best by not wearing his name out. Don't go on about him directly. Praise him without mentioning his name and people will come. The trouble is we wear out the name of God. The Jews were right. Best not to say the name. Devout Jews will just say Hashem, the name. They won't go any further. You know? Just play the music. Just do the Latin. Just praise him. Call people to him in a hundred thousand different ways. Now what way have you been called? That's what I'm asking you today. In what way have you been called? That's how I want you to think. And that's really my message to you this Christmas. I really began this talk with the great hope of destroying what was left of your Christmas and utterly wrecking your new year. And I feel I've made a very creditable stab at that. What have you been called to do? And what 
is he asking of you? Some definite service, you lucky creature. In a way, not, because a sword will pierce your heart too. There will be the price. There is always the price for these things. You don't get away without the wound. So that's what I'm going to ruin your new year with. In the name of God, to call you to be a slave of God, a slave of Mary, a slave of God, to do him that service that he has always intended you to do. Let's end this again with the great Cardinal Newman. Somehow I am necessary for his purposes. I have a part in this great work. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place while not intending it, if I do but keep his commandments and serve him in my calling. Therefore I will trust him. Whatever, wherever I am, I can never be thrown away. I am in sickness, my sickness may serve him. In perplexity, my perplexity may serve him. If I am in sorrow, my sorrow may serve him. My sickness or perplexity or sorrow may be necessary causes of some great end, which is quite beyond us. He does nothing in vain. He may prolong my life, he may shorten it. He knows what he is about. He may take away my friends, he may throw me among strangers. He may make me feel desolate, make my spirit sink, hide the future from me. Still, he knows what he is about. Let me be thy blind instrument. I ask not to see, I ask not to know. I ask simply to be used. Reggie Foster, pray for us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.